invite you to take your scriptures into the book of Hebrews chapter 4. As we read through the book of Hebrews, and really through any book in the, in the Bible, it's important for us to recognize, many of them, some of them are historical record, but especially these, these are epistles, these are letters. And it's good to be able to read them as a letter, recognizing that each of these writers had a particular theme under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And on that basis, they, they, they wrote this particular letter to a particular group of people for a particular purpose. Now, it's significant for us to keep that in mind as we are reading through any letter so that we might keep a, a theme in, in our perspective and in the back of our minds so that we can understand what this writer is seeking to accomplish. And, of course, in the, in the book of Hebrews, he's writing to us that Jesus is better. Individuals who were facing some difficult days, some persecutions, some those who came out of Judaism, they now believe in Jesus as the Messiah, and it would be very easy for them to shrink back into Judaism because of the persecution. They'd be, go back into that which is comfortable, that which where they were very, very familiar with, where their friends were, where their family was, uh, associations which many of them lost because of their identity with Jesus as the Messiah. And so there's a theme which we are, are working with as we come through here. Some people will call it a narrative in our day and age. It's, it's the narrative. Well, what's the narrative? Uh, and in news media, they, they say they, they, they have a narrative or they have an agenda, and they report on things, maybe even have to twist things in order to fit their agenda, fit their narrative. We have to be very, very careful when we open the scriptures that we don't try to fit our narrative into that which we're reading. Or, or our agenda into this. Our, our whole purpose is to, is to make a clear study. Uh, even as 2 Timothy 2.15 says, cut a straight path through. Study to show that I self-approved unto God. A workman that needs not, the workman, cut a straight path through it. So we seek to avoid rabbit trails. We want the scripture to speak to us. We want the scripture to interpret scripture. So our goal here is to draw out from the Scriptures, not read into them in, in any way. Because when you come to chapter 4, verse 14, it, it just appears to be an abrupt change of course. For these past weeks now, and I think we divided up into, what, four or five different parts under the title of today, but from chapter 3, verse 7, through the chapter 4, verse 13, you had this continuous... Um, uh, sideline, really, which the writer took, admonishing us about the, the uh, availability of arrest, but we have to respond to it today. We, we don't have the opportunity of, of putting it off. We need to respond as God the Holy Spirit is, is speaking to us. And so he, he spent his time there, and then in verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our profession. It just seems to be in a total abrupt change in what he's doing. What do you mean Jesus is our high priest? We've been talking about rest. What do you mean hold fast? Because he begins this, the King James uses the word seeing then, 
Some texts use the word therefore. And we've had several therefores now in chapter 4, just seeking to explain and, and to summate uh, in a summary fashion um, what, what he's been talking about. So, so therefore, we have a great... Therefore, you haven't even been talking about that. Well, actually, he has. He introduced Jesus as the high priest really back in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 17, Wherefore all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Chapter 3, verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. So he's already introduced it, just very briefly, and now he's actually coming back to that, chapter 4, verse 14, and it's going to be the bulk now of the book right on in through chapter 10. So we get the idea. This is what he really wanted to get to. He had to talk about, well, yeah, Jesus gave to us a better uh, understanding. Uh, of the scriptures. Jesus as, as, uh, spoke better than the prophets. Jesus was better than the angels. Jesus was better than Moses. And so that's the theme, but now he wants to establish Jesus is the high priest. He's a better high priest. And now he's going to go through the, the Old Testament. He's going to go through the book of Leviticus. He's going to go through and explain to these saved Jews why the sacrifice of Jesus is better than everything that they experienced through the temple worship and all the sacrifices which they had been a part of. That morning and evening sacrifice and the, the special days which they needed to observe. Therefore, because of the offer of rest, because of the potential of not receiving rest, and also because that we cannot hide any part of our lives from God, verse 14, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do, you need a high priest. So that's the, 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 the flow here of that which he's trying to accomplish. It's not a, uh, an abrupt change of pace. He's introduced it. Now, it appeared to some maybe he got off track a little bit. No, he introduced the high priest position, talked about his faithfulness. He identified Moses as also faithful, but Jesus was faithful over the house, even though Moses was faithful as part of the house. And now he's coming back to that theme that he really wants to get to, that Jesus is the perfect high priest. So, all the... Warning then he gave to us in chapter 3, verse 7, down through chapter 4, verse 13, is a reminder to us to hold fast. Our holding fast to the profession is nothing more than the indication that our profession is real. Now, those who hold fast are the ones who have truly uh, latched on to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want to do that. And so, and really it really goes back to even in chapter 1. When he introduced you know, our original outline with, from Dr. Jennings, if you remember, the divine articulation, the divine architect, the divine adjective, the divine advocate, and the divine, or the divine atonement and the divine advocate. In verses 1, 2, and 3, that's how we began this particular study. So he even introduced Jesus as the high priest then, where he says he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. As the divine advocate, He's seated beside, beside God the Father. As our divine atonement, it says he made 
when he by himself had purged our sins. And so he, he's introduced it even early in the book itself. So what are we looking at here? Because we are under the penetrating gaze of a holy God, we need a high priest. Verse 14, the existence of our high priest. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. First of all, he gives us his location. The location of this high priest. He's in the heavens. It's, again, plural, but it's, it's in the heavens. And when we think in the New Testament, we've basically been able to identify three heavens. The immediate atmosphere around us, the home of the, the sky, the home of the birds. Then you have the solar system, and then you have what we call a third heaven, the abode of God. Paul refers to it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, where he says he was caught up to the third heaven. Now, in our day and age, we talk about seven, the seventh heaven. Oh, I'm the seventh heaven. I have no idea where that is. In fact, I went back and looked that up, and I don't even know for sure where it came from other than maybe mythology. Now, there are some different uh, religions out there who, who talk about those. In fact, some of them have more than seven, by the way. But, uh, and of course, there was a, a TV program uh, several years ago. I think it ran for several years, evidently, of a preacher and his family. I, I, I never watched it, but uh, if you actually type in Seventh Heaven to see what comes up, first three or four pages is all about that TV program. So I guess I missed out on something. But yet, uh, but, I, but Scripture does identify three. Now it's interesting in the Old Testament, whenever you have the word heaven used, it's always used in plural. But here we have the opportunity to, to look at the third heaven. Now also when you think about this, we're talking about Jesus as our high priest who's in the third heaven, has passed through the heavens in order to get there. Think the Old Testament priest. What was his movement there in the temple? He started in the outer court, then he went into the holy place, and then he went into the holy of holies. So he, he had three areas that he went through, and, and there's no direct parallel that, that I know of that Scripture ever uses, but it's interesting those are the three stages which the Old Testament priest went through as well. Jesus has passed into the heavens. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 14 says, it speaks of the heaven of heavens as belonging to God. Hebrews 1 3, he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Acts chapter 1, the, the, the disciples, apostles, saw him ascend into the clouds. The cloud received him out of his sight. We know where he is. It says here he has passed into the heavens. We have a high priest, or the Old Testament high priest we recognize passed behind the curtain. But yet they always knew where he was. Jesus has passed out of our sight, but we know where he is. We are assured of his presence. And so his location is in the heavens. His disposition, verse 15, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Cannot be touched. It's to suffer with another individual. It's really the word sympathy. He's the one who's able to, the feeling of one who enters into the suffering and makes it his own. You heard the line, I feel your pain. Uh, and some of you have, 
identify with other people because of perhaps a loss which they have had in their family or perhaps a surgery which they had or, or the, maybe even just the loss of a job. But, but there was something that someone perhaps could come along beside you and say, hey, I know what you're going through. And perhaps you've been able to walk to somebody else and say, hey, hey I know what you're going through. Went too long after my surgery that I, I got, someone called me and said, hey, hey, tell me, tell me. They, they wanted to know what I experienced. It's nice to be able to identify with people on that level. Jesus is able to have sympathy here. He says, with our weaknesses, with our infirmities, the fact that we are strengthless, the, the idea of infirmities, the inability to produce. Jesus knows our physical and our moral limitations. He has sympathy for that. He knows that. He can identify with those things which we have. So, we're under the gaze of this God. Jesus enters into our sufferings, for He too has faced the limitations of the flesh. And so we have the existence of our high priest, his location and his disposition. Verse 15 also talks to us about the temptation of our high priest. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. The idea of temptation is simply to make proof of, to try, to uh, put somebody on trial to actually see what they are made of. And literally it says, according to all things, according to the likeness. So again, Jesus was tempted in every area of sin that we have been tempted in, except he was apart from sin. What every area is that? And, and I think you can go back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, where it talks about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life where John seems to use that as a, as, a, as a summary of every particular sin that you go through. And if you begin to identify your sins, I think you can lump those each sin into one of those categories. Where in Luke chapter 4, when you look at the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have each one of those, where you have the lust of the flesh. He hungered. You have the lust of the eyes. Satan took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. You have the pride of life. Jesus was taken up to the pinnacle of the temple and asked to throw himself down. Every area says specifically, according to all things, according to likeness. Again, not every temptation that we have had, but the likeness of every temptation that we will ever have. Jesus was tempted. He was put to the test. In every avenue of sin, he experienced that. In fact, back again in chapter 2, verse 18, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted. The fact that the very exposure to him of sin was suffering to him. But yet again, verse 15 of chapter 4 says, he did so yet without sin, apart from sin. There was nothing in him for sin to latch onto. That's the beauty of it. There was nothing in Jesus for sin to latch onto. He was always submissive to the divine will. Now this, of course, always rises the uh, 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 theological discussion of many magnitudes as people will fight on both sides of it. Did, 
Did, uh, was Jesus able to sin or was Jesus able not to sin? And a lot of people say, well, if Jesus wasn't able to sin, then his temptation could not have been real. It actually became a major point of discussion regarding when I was ordained, more nation service you know, years, years ago. Um, uh, back in stone tablets, it feels like. Um, some of those guys... Uh, um, Sometimes I used to use the phrase back when I was a punk monk in the Himalayas. I haven't used that phrase here at all, but but that's kind of what it goes back, what it goes back to. And as part of the ordination, that there was the moderator said, now we recognize within the scope of biblical theology there can be some honest disagreements on both sides of it, and we're not going to get into those. Well, they almost got into it on this particular point, because one of the guys said, "You mean you don't think Jesus?" Could sin? And I said, no, I don't think Jesus could sin. And this is where he was going. Well, how could his temptation indeed be real? And one of the gentlemen sitting on the, on the uh, panel there said, now we agreed at the beginning that we weren't going to discuss some of these things. But it, it becomes a fascinating discussion. Was Jesus able not to sin? Or was Jesus what, not even able to, to sin? Right? And I maintain that there was nothing in Jesus that sin was able to latch on to. Jesus was not able to sin. He always submitted himself to the divine will. That does not mean his temptations were not real. Because again, he was exposed to it. He suffered in that process. Now you have taken on some monumental task in your, in your, especially when we were kids. We thought we could do this. We thought we could do that. And, and our parents knew there's no way we could do it, but they let us try. They knew we weren't going to get hurt in the process. And we could you know, beat our head against the wall thinking that we could move it. It was an impossibility, but they let us do it. Even though it was, I believe, an impossibility for Jesus to sin, that didn't preclude Satan from coming after him with all these attacks. Where Satan ultimately had to understand his own limitations when it came to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what did Jesus do for us? Jesus demonstrated to us the life that's living in control of the Holy Spirit of God. Galatians chapter 5 tells us, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And so that which Jesus did experience is a perfect example for us how we are to carry out our own sin, sinful temptations and how those things, when those things come upon us. God permits us to be tempted. God permits us to be tried. God permits us to make to be to made to, to see what we're made out of. I have to realize my helplessness. I have to realize my dependence upon God for every escape from those very things. Our high priest ministers in heaven. He's sympathetic to the weakness of our flesh. Now again, it says. He's sympathetic. It does not say he excuses our weaknesses. Please understand that. He's sympathetic to your infirmities. It does not say he excuses those because he's given to us the ability to say no to temptation. And so I can't, I, I, I can't use, I was just overwhelmed and or any excuse I can conjure up here, and, and I look for the blame game. I'm blaming him, I'm blaming her, whatever the case might be. That's been around since Genesis chapter 3. Now, he doesn't 
excuse my weakness. He identifies with him. He sympathizes with him, but he does not excuse my weaknesses. And so I have a high priest. I know he is in heaven. I know he is making intercession for me. I know that he identifies with my weaknesses. I know he has experienced all these things. What is to be my response then to him? He says there in verse 14, hold fast. Two things regarding our response. Hold fast, lay hold of. Because of the ministry of the high priest, because of the perfection of the high priest, the exhortation here is to lay hold of that which I acknowledge as true. Again, chapter 3, verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the holy calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Chapter 10, verse 23. We're also going to see that again when we get to that. Let us hold fast to that which we have declared openly. And again, these readers of this letter, those who are facing some persecution, those who would be tempted to, 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 uh, to draw back into a, a level of life which was much more comfortable, a level of society where they're not going to experience all these things. Now the writer says, no, you have made a profession. Hold fast to it. And the day is coming, beloved, where we are going to be called upon to hold fast. And really, we're just one election away from that. It is right around the corner. And so the admonition that these people are receiving here is indeed ours. My response to my high priest is, I hold fast. I have declared Jesus to be the Son of God. I have declared Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. Hold fast to that. Don't shrink back. So my response to this high priest is to latch on to him, latch on to my profession. But the second thing I am to do is to draw near. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace. Don't retreat. Don't retreat. Yeah, it's, 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 it's not pleasant out there. It, it's, it's not appealing out there in every way. But because of who you are and because of the, of the problems that we, and the infirmities which we have and because I'm open unto the eyes of him, I am naked before him, I need a high priest, I have to draw near to him. I have every reason to get close to Jesus. Every reason. To establish an intimate relationship with him. And so all believers, let us come near. We have access to God through Jesus, our high priest. And not only do we draw near, but he qualifies it, draw near boldly. Be free to speak, open to speak in every way. No fear, absolute confidence. That's the right that you have as a citizen of heaven to come in boldly. Well, too long ago I heard... Uh, Ronald Reagan was had quite the sense of humor, but he had a talked about the uh, the contrast between a 
uh, a Russian and American. An American was saying, I have freedom of speech. I can walk right into the president's office and I can slam my hand down on the desk and I say, I think President Reagan is doing a lousy job. Well, the Russian says, well, I can do that. Of course, Gorbachev was alive then. He said, I can walk into Gorbachev's office and I can slam my hand on the desk and I said, I think President Reagan is doing a lousy job. My freedom of speech says I can come in to the throne room of God and I can speak boldly. I can speak with confidence. I can speak freely. Why not? I'm already naked with him. Well, 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 why can't I just pour out my heart to him and say, well, God, I'm a mess right now. I've blown it many, many, and I blew it again. I, I, I thought I was over this one, and now it's reared its ugly head again. And, and God, I'm, I'm a mess. I need to speak clearly. I can speak boldly. That's an opportunity that I have because of Jesus as my high priest. What benefit then do I receive from my high priest? Verse 16, I obtain mercy. In keeping with the sympathetic response of my high priest to my infirmities, he shows pity upon me. I obtain mercy. An act of God whereby he expresses or presents all the resources sufficient to, to meet my need. Back in Luke chapter 1, Mary's song upon the realization of pregnancy, His mercy to those who fear Him. God's, God's, I obtain mercy. God withholds from me the very things which I deserve. And secondly, then I find grace. I receive the very things which I do not deserve. I have favor. I have approval. That's what my high priest does for me. And thirdly, he's punctual. I find those things in the time of need. Mercy, grace. Come to me in, in my time of need. Literally, it says, for opportune help. So, when he brings his mercy when he brings his grace it's not too early it's not too late it's right there when I need it right at the right time folks if there's ever a reason for us to make regular visits to the throne of grace verses 14 15 and 16 of Hebrews chapter 4 some tells us about it. now we got a lot more to go about Jesus as a high priest and we get on into chapter 5 and, 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 and more but we have so much right here why do I need a high priest? Because I'm a mess. Uh, my weaknesses, my infirmities, morally, physically, I'm a mess. And I am naked before God. He invites me to come. He invites you to come. Heavenly Father, we pray for presentation of Scripture to our hearing this morning. Lord, what a blessed passage of Scripture. After he spends his time in modesting us to, 
Today, if you hear His voice, harden not your heart. And so, Lord, for us who are believers, not even looking at an unbeliever today, if there is an unbeliever, Lord, even today's message is so, so important for today and for our response to that. To come into the throne room, come boldly, come confidently. Jesus knows we're a mess. And Lord, there may be somebody here that has kind of gotten tired of coming to the throne room because they messed up again. And they may be even presently in a major mess that they just, oh, they just, they cringe over. I pray, oh God, that today's reminders, you have a high priest who is sympathetic. He feels our pain, the weaknesses of our flesh. He understands that. He understands that, oh God, that we have resisted all of the resources available to us to walk in the Spirit to declare this sinful nature dead to sin, but alive, but our bodies alive unto the Lord Jesus. Oh, if there's ever a reason to come to the throne of grace, today is it. And tomorrow, and Tuesday, and Wednesday. The Lord, as long as we are upon this earth, the struggle with sin will continue. The realization of our infirmities will only grow the closer we get to the light. So I pray, O oh God, that we might recognize the precious position, the precious place to be. In the Holy of Holies, with our Savior, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray for each and every person here today in their walk with you. And I pray, O oh God, that there is a particular need that they have that they keep struggling with. There are plenty of people here in the building who would be of help to them. And so we're asking, oh God, your mercy upon each. Thank you for loving us. We thank you for our beautiful Savior. For in his name we ask. Amen.